Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. That is right. This is the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. That's you. Yes. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined once again, as always, of course, by my co-host, Rob Dunham. If you recognize this, you were born in the 1890s. All of our fans are born in the 1890s. Of course. They're also out churning butter and riding horses and, I don't know, other things that 1890s people did. I feel like singing Weird Al right now. Yeah. <laughs> we do literally live in the English paradise, so yeah, appropriate. Indeed it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you like the Film for Fans podcast, please do us a favor and rate and subscribe and share it with your friends. If you do, Weird Al will come to your birthday party and sing songs for you. If you don't, I will have the writers of Godzilla vs. Kong write the life story for your motion picture. That sounds like a preview for later. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we have a great show. We're going to talk about... Godzilla vs. Kong breaking pandemic records. Joss Whedon is apparently a terrible person. <laughs> and, and we'll revisit time loops and underdog stories. And we're going to give you what to watch on Netflix and Amazon Prime. So you want to make sure you stay tuned the whole way to the end. The whole way to the end. We're putting the good stuff at the end. Actually, the good stuff is the entire podcast. but Indeed. Who am I to say otherwise? <laughs> All right, you ready to kick it off, Rob? I am so ready. Okay. So the first story is Godzilla versus Kong. Now, we previewed it a little bit last week, but the numbers, the initial numbers are in, and they are quite good for the pandemic times. So Godzilla versus Kong smashed the box office record. Of course, this is the pandemic box office record uh, by making 20 million in three days, which is pretty good considering the previous record was Wonder Woman 84 at 16.4 million. Uh, both of these movies, Wonder Woman 84 and Godzilla vs. Kong, were Warner Brothers movies that debuted both in theater and on HBO Max at the same time. So, This says something. It says that people wanted to see this movie and potentially that more people are starting to come back to the theaters. Rob, what would you make of the numbers? Those kind of, you know, make me have a wry smile just hearing those numbers and the word record. I know, right? Like a whole $28 million. (laughs) Woo! Um, uh, But uh, they did point out in the article, I believe that the the uh, last Godzilla movie only made about $48 million in its opening weekend. So um, I would say that uh, making over half of that in the time frame and place that we're in right now is probably a pretty good return. And I would guess it's more than they were expecting uh, to make the first weekend with a movie. So who knows? We might have a $100 million movie on our hands. Yeah. Impressive. Well, and technically, according to the article, also it's already made 123 million internationally. Oh, that doesn't count though, because the only thing that matters is America, obviously. For real. (laughs) (laughs) But it it does say that it could uh, 
this five day total could be almost fifty million. So wow. that's uh that's a big deal. Um I chose to watch this one at home and I'm sure a whole bunch of people will have done the same with HBO Max. Uh, I'm interested to seeing uh you know, if there were more people who signed up for the service uh, when they released some of the tracking data and all that because of this movie in particular. Yeah. And my hope too is that seeing numbers go up for this movie might hopefully convince a few more studios that it's starting to become a little safer to release things at box office. So um, that's a shot across the bow to you, Disney. <laughs> sticking movies, Disney. Give us the Marvel movies already. Come on. So, yeah. But that's good. I, I'm glad I'm glad Godzilla vs. Kong did well. I think any movie that does reasonably well right now is good for the overall industry. So, uh, Rob, are you going to want to talk about this movie later? I know you have some thoughts. You know, I'll talk, I'll about, talk about it later when we talk about what we watched this week. Excellent. So we will move on to our next story, which is about Joss Whedon and Gal Gadot. So uh, the story Godot. is Godot. not Godot, not Godot. She pronounces the T. I'm telling you, I heard her pronounce the T. I've never heard anyone pronounce it that way. But if you say she does, I, then, that's what I heard. Then literally everyone else in the world is wrong. <laughs> Just, hey, <laughs> I... It is what it is. <laughs> Let's just call her gal. <laughs> gal, yes. That works. <laughs> All right. So uh, this story comes to us. Apparently, uh, Ray Fisher, the actor who played Cyborg, as well as another anonymous sources, have uh, leveled some accusations at Joss Whedon about misconduct on the sets. Now, some of this has been out for a little while, but some of the more details of this have come out more recently. Um, Josh Whedon does not exactly have a stellar reputation when it comes to some of these things, but the main complaint here is that he actually threatened Gal Gadot's career, uh, basically saying if she doesn't shut up and listen to him and just read the lines as he wrote them, that he would make her character awful and terrible. <laughs> Which, I mean... Well, if she couldn't do that on her own, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other story. Uh-uh. <laughs> um, and also, it, he was extremely unwilling to listen to any sort of criticism about his script. So I think some of the, I'm trying to find the exact quotes here. Um, the anonymous source says, Joss was bragging that he'd had it out with Gal. He told her he's the writer and she's going to shut up and say the lines and he can make her look incredibly stupid in this movie. Mm. So that seems like a bit of a self-own because if you intentionally make a character in the movie you're directing terrible, doesn't that also reflect badly on you as the director? But I could make it worse than what I made it. And why? Why? Yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand the purpose of that threat because why would you want to hurt the thing you're working on? I know. So <laughs> with all of these, with all of the stories like this, I mean, there's always a sensational element about it where it can easily be made to look worse or it can be taken out of context. However, this is not the only thing that's 
been said about Joss Whedon. And we do know, I mean, the final product was not great on this movie. And given what Zack Snyder produced when he finally got the opportunity to do it himself was significant upgrade. I think, I think there's a, I think there's smoke where there's fire here or there's fire where there's smoke here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, well, I definitely think that the Ray Fisher criticism sounds very possible and likely because as we saw in the Snyder cut, they actually developed Cyborg's character and showed his backstory and his motivation and actually made you care about him. And they took all that out of the original version of the movie. So I can understand why he would be upset. And I, I don't understand why, uh, why Joss was so like intent on doing that. But I guess it was just the fact that he thought he needed to maintain a certain runtime and just couldn't, you know, keep some stuff in, so he had to decide what to sacrifice, and he decided to give that up. But I can understand why um, Ray Fisher would be upset with that, because it completely changed his entire character's dynamic in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of, like, it's it's hard to tell when, when you hear reports of an argument, if it's just words said in anger, or if he was just really being a megalomaniac who was out to just get gal and yeah it's hard to know um what anyone's real personality I know. is in hollywood at all uh yeah. i think about the show entourage and other shows like that where they kind of explore that sort of thing where you look at this is the persona of the person but in reality they're this and a lot of the times the, this is the opposite to what they're known as in public so it's hard to know exactly who is what you know yeah that being said i i have found joss whedon to be an increasingly bad director (laughs) so so i i i'm wondering how long he's going to continue to get big films yeah i mean mean, you can only i feel like you should only be able to screw up so many things before they're like yeah let's not do this anymore so Okay, well, let's move on to our discussion topics. So we've got a couple of interesting discussion topics for tonight. And the first one um, comes to us from an article. uh, IGN did an exploration um, about the question of, are time loops the new zombies? And what they're getting at here is, there was a time in the late 2000s where every movie was about zombies and everything had zombies in it. And now they're seeing a rise and a trend in both video games and in movies and TV shows about time travel and time loops, which dovetails nicely with the thing we did a couple weeks ago about our favorite time travel movies which is an article you can find on filmforfans.com. Make sure you plug that. Click that up. Go to the website, filmforfans.com. But this is interesting because the article, it's it's kind of a long article, but it, it explores both the rise, the details on the rise in time travel movies, as well as offer some explanation as to 
what some potential reasons are for that. Now, I want to get into one specific reason, and we'll see what your what your thoughts are this, and if there's anything else from this that you want to highlight. Um, but the one thing that I found fascinating was they trace some of this to movie box office goers being more sophisticated. Basically, we've educated people about more intense plot lines and people have gotten used to them and they've essentially become movie smarter so that you can get away with more and more things and you can get away with more and more complexity within movies. And therefore, we can have more time travel stories. Now, I, think I, found I, hear, I think I hear happy Christopher Nolan sounds. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, Christopher <laughs> Nolan would be the poster boy for this kind of, for this kind of idea. And that as we push movies further and further, audiences are more and more comfortable with more complexity, which, of course, time travel is full of infinite complexity when done properly. So what do you make of that? Do you do you think there's some truth to that, that we have basically built audiences up and they've become more sophisticated and smarter so we can have more time travel movies? I don't know if it's that people have become smarter. I just think it's that there's a much broader variety of material and subject matter out there. So people just are interested in different things. Like they don't want the same thing over and over again. So having this as one of the things that's cropping up more interests people. And I think when they see one movie that's like it, they want to see another movie that's like it. Or if they see a Christopher Nolan movie, they want to see the next Christopher Nolan movie. And, you know, I just think some of it is due to people, uh, getting involved or attached to certain directors or actors who are in these kind of things. I, I don't like, I don't think that people before were dumb. Yeah. I guess you could say, I think there's, there's been given more space and freedom for people to be more creative. I think um, you could argue that, you know, the splitting apart of the movie industry uh, to like, places that are strictly streaming online like Netflix or um, Prime in some cases or uh, regular studio movie houses that are putting movies in the theater, there is more space for people to like put out their vision. So I think we're seeing more visions that are more detailed because in the past studios might have been afraid to spend X amount of money on this or that, but now there's so many platforms for it, it's much easier. See, my first thought is that he's diving a little bit too deeply into something that might be a little simpler than this, is that there's there's a lot of Hollywood that's just a copycat industry. Once something works, they'll keep doing it until it no longer works. Yeah. And And so if right now people want time travel movies, you're going to get a million time travel movies. It's like Star Wars becomes incredibly popular. Now you've got a whole bunch of knockoff Star Wars movies. Vampires become really popular. Now you've got a whole bunch of vampire movies. Zombies become real popular. So now you've got a bunch of – it starts with a movie or two, and then everyone starts capitalizing on top of that. So I think I think maybe it's as simple as, hey, something is working. Let's ride that wave until it's done. So I don't know that there's a ton of complexity about it. I love these movies, though, so I'm a fan if we get more of them. And 
I don't know. Was there, was there something else about this that you found interesting? I think one of the overarching things that they hit on that I really agree with is that um, in a lot of cases for people, they approach and enjoy these kinds of movies um, because it gives them the ability to rethink like their reality because the reality is that a lot of people's lives are not that great a lot of the time. And I don't know if that's super different than before, but I think people maybe more than before are turning to entertainment for an escape that way. And I think that the, the concept of being able to rewrite your own reality is something that really appeals people. So they like seeing that kind of thing on the screen where someone is able to change the course of their life where things weren't going great and have a more uh, positive outcome. Yeah. And I think, I think too, along those lines, time is the one thing that we have that is constant and unbreakable as far as we know. And so there's something about intentionally breaking it that opens up the creative facilities that, that we're immediately intrigued by it because who, which one of us would not want to go back and redo a day? <laughs> like in the case of Groundhog Day, in order to do it right. They quote, they quote the, the director from Groundhog Day in this one a number of times. Um, who wouldn't want to do that? Or who wouldn't want to mess around with going back to the past, to some other time frame that, you know, we would love to experience that we didn't get to experience? There's something immediately that draws us in about it because it's something we know we can't do, but the creative field for that is so wide open and is, is so plentiful. So I think the other reason why it's more popular is because there's almost endless amount of things that you can do about it. And almost all of them are inherently interesting based on the concept alone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And they chalk some of it up to the global pandemic, but that really only applies for the last year. And so when they're talking about the rise in, in a lot of these movies, uh, the stats they quoted was between 1980 and 2009, Wikipedia lists 18 film releases about time loops. In the last 11 years, between 2010 and now, the number is 36. Wow. That is significant. Yeah. Yeah, that is a significant uptick. And there's a, there's a lot to it. I mean, some of the ones they quote, like Happy Death Day, Primer, Looper, The Endless, Russian Doll, Source Code, Predestination, Edge of Tomorrow. There's, there's a lot to it. And they are specifically trying to talk about time loops, which is a, a subset of time travel, as it were, um, going back and forth. Um, reliving the same moment. I like Edge of Tomorrow as a time travel movie because it was so committed to a time travel movie it went back in time and changed its own name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Live, die, repeat. Yeah, that, it's fascinating how that went down. So, <laughs> I still refer to it as Edge of Tomorrow. So, <laughs> <to> me. <laughs> But whatever the case is, I'm enjoying uh, the rise in time loop and time travel movies. I'm I'm a fan of them. As long as they're done well, I think there's still plenty of 
gold to mine in that in that department. Yeah, we've talked about how each one of them has its own constraints, own rules, own universe. I don't think you could ever really run out of variations on that. Yeah, I agree. All right, so let's get into another fun one. Um, Entertainment Weekly this week posted an article where they are talking about underdogs. So this is um, the title of it is called Awkward Underdogs from Our Favorite Movies. Outcasts, loners, nerds, and geeks of our cinematic heroes. So they posted a list of about 20 different geeks who were kind of underdogs who you root for and are part of your favorite movies. Uh, so I thought we, that we would have a little bit of fun here and we'd pick out some of our favorite kind of nerdy, geeky, awkward underdogs that are in our favorite movies that we always root for. You have to, you have to root for the underdog geek. So Rob, let's, uh, let, let's go back and forth here on this one. Uh, Give us give us one of yours and tell us why this this awkward hero is on your list. So when I hear underdog, awkward, hero, geek person, like Scott Pilgrim jumps right to the front of my mind. I know I literally just talked about the movie last week. But I didn't even have to read this list. As soon as I saw the title of the list, I said Scott Pilgrim, and there he was, I think number 18 or something on the list. And uh, basically the archetype, of the geeky loner who just wants to be loved, who becomes the hero. And the great thing about him, too, is that he's completely unwitting at the beginning, which I think a lot of these characters, when they're done really well, are that way. They don't understand everything that's happening around them. Um, They're surprised by it. It's confusing. And uh, there's something about them that leads them to, you know, become the hero. and. so Scott is just this boy who has a crush on this girl and does not realize that in order to get this girl to be with him, he has to defeat her seven evil exes. <laughs> so he is thrown into this whole universe of having to battle against evil. That he had no idea existed. And it's just such a great uh, romp through comic book tropes and visuals and yeah, Scott Pilgrim is my underdog hero, and he'll always be. Nice. <laughs> uh, so the first one I will will talk about is not on this list. I went off board on this one, and I'm going with Juno McGuff from the movie mm-hmm. Juno. Uh, I think she is she's a fantastic example of kind of a dorky, awkward underdog hero. Um, the movie Juno, this which has the overlap of the main character from the movie you just said, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Uh, so Juno is, uh, is a girl who becomes pregnant in high school and is, is having to deal with the fallout of that. And she is, she's a dork. She listens to awkward music. She loves drinking red slushies. She has, uh, a funny, interesting way of saying things. She wears slinky T-shirts. Uh, just, just a classic, a classic underdog story, and an underdog hero. And you really feel for her, and 
you want her to succeed. You want her to come to terms with what's going on and to be able to, to deal with it. And, and it's really, it's, it's a heartwarming story and she has, she has a ton of character to her and you can't help but, but root for her in her awkwardness. There's one point in which um, she sets up an entire uh, lawn, an entire like living room set on the front lawn, which is pretty cool and fills um, a, an entire mailbox full of Pez or not Pez uh, t- Tic Tacs. So there's a lot, there's lots of cool, fun, uh, interesting, awkward things from Juno McGuff. Uh, another one that I was just thinking of, and it's not on this list, and maybe the people who came up with this list wouldn't even consider it, um, you know, one that belongs on the list. But I was just thinking about uh, my favorite hero in any movie ever, and it's Bruce Willis's character in Unbreakable. Hmm. And now I, I, I wouldn't say he fits necessarily the prototype of what we're talking about here but if you look deeper at his character's story i think he is that because he's a person whose um life is passing him by he is lonely he is uh is separated and you know apart from his wife he's not in a meaningful relationship he's uh frustrated with a job that isn't going anywhere um he's not sure what his purpose in life is He's survived a couple incidents where he should have died. And he, like I said, the one thing that a lot of these characters have is their unwitting nature. And that's very much him. He does not know what's going on in his life and why he's uh, been spared the way he has and what's going on. And all of a sudden he has this super strength out of nowhere that he can't explain. Um, And he turns into the ultimate hero and saves people's lives. And I think that like him, the way I look at it, I think he fits pretty well into this discussion too. Even though it's not necessarily like the nerd, it's just a guy who's frustrated and alone. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting take. That was not one that I would have thought of off the top of my head. I like it. I like it. So the next one for me is uh, actually on the list that they produced, and that was uh, Javed Khan from Blinded by the Light. Of course, this is a movie that came out in 2019, and it's about a Pakistani family living in England. And they're, they're a little bit of societal outcasts, but the teenage son, Javed, uh, does even more uh, stands out because he loves, 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 loves the music of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen is his guy. He dresses like Bruce. He has Bruce posters all over his wall. He goes around singing Bruce Springsteen songs out in public. His entire life is about Bruce Springsteen. And so there was, at this point in life, there was, there was a sense within his teenage culture that Bruce Springsteen was a has-been at that point. So this immediately puts him in the dorky category. Uh, he, he's a fun, interesting character. They actually break into the school's radio station at one point and put on Bruce Springsteen records and lock the door so that nobody can get in. And the whole school is just playing Bruce Springsteen. Uh, 
but it's it's fascinating because it's it's a great movie that deals with how he's he's trying to find his independence and the music of Bruce Springsteen is really speaking to him in the moments. But you could tell throughout the whole movie that he just beats to a different drummer. <laughs> and and it, it provides some interesting and awkward moments for him. But he's he's a very likable, rootable character. I actually haven't seen this movie yet, so I, I need to do that because I wanted to see it when I was in the theater and just never got to it. Yeah, and I'm not a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, but it's 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 worth watching. It's a good movie. Uh, one other one I would talk about briefly is uh, I you could make an argument that I think that almost literally every character in the movie Napoleon Dynamite mm. is this. Yeah, good. <laughs> in some way or another. Uh, but the one they highlighted was Pedro, and Pedro is just this uh, Latin American kid who wants people to like him. And yeah, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, vote for Pedro. Uh, for Pedro, so, somehow Pedro became like the most popular. I, I would argue he might be more popular than Napoleon in pop culture, because I think "Vote for Pedro" is like a thing that a whole lot of people know, which is really interesting because he's definitely not the main attraction in the movie, but yeah. his story is one that drives the whole movie forward, and you wouldn't have the the complete um, tale without his storyline being a main part. So, yeah. Go for Pedro. Go for Pedro. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my last one is Olive Pendergast from Easy A. And Olive definitely fits the bill of awkward underdog hero in that she loves to read. She has an off-wit sense of humor. I think the scene that encompasses uh if you have not seen the movie Easy A, basically a rumor gets started that Olive uh, has sex with a bunch of guys and people, the other dorks in the school, the other guy dorks in the school basically give her gift cards so that they can pretend that they slept with her. And it's a whole big thing. And it's, it's loosely based on the idea of the Scarlet Letter and how there's, how there's, lots of shaming involved and how rumors spread and how lies can affect things. But her character, I think the, the, the scene that best sums up her character is during this first moment where she supposedly had this first sexual encounter, it shows what she was actually doing. And the scene that shows what she actually did that weekend was she spent the entire day or the entire weekend in her apartment singing along with her, um, her musical card that's I got a pocket full of sunshine. So mm-hmm. the whole the whole weekend she's just opening this card, I got a pocket full of sunshine, I got a pocket full of sunshine. And by the end of the weekend she'd actually ruined the battery and the thing no longer sang because she actually <laughs> used it up. So it just perfectly it, it exemplifies her underdog status and her uh, her dork qualities. But then uh, she just like totally embraces the rumors and the false rumors just to show everybody how bad they are. So it's it's a it's a fun and it's a heartfelt movie. So all of Pendergast. Okay, that was our awkward underdogs, and so now we get to move on to our watch list. Dun, now, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. We need an actual like movies. Like an actual like sound clip for the transition here. We need sound clips for every transition. Now, if only our you know behind the scenes producers would get to work and stop slacking off. 
You know, there's only so much time that one has in a day. You well, know? I didn't say it was you. I said it was our producers, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm giving away the behind the scenes here. We don't have a crew of 900 people. Oh, false. Erroneous. Erroneous. <laughs> Erroneous on both counts. <laughs> oh, good stuff. I love it. <laughs> Probably my favorite gift ever from a movie, to be honest. <laughs> Vince Vaughn going, Alright! From Wedding Crashers, which, although not a great movie, does have some very funny lines in it. I've it seen. absolutely does. Also, so, Bradley Cooper being a jerk and tackling people for no reason is pretty funny. I know. This was actually one of the first Bradley Cooper movies I ever saw. Like, I didn't, I hadn't seen him in Alias at that point or anything like this. So my first impression of Bradley Cooper was, man, that dude's a jerk. (laughs) I want to punch that guy. (laughs) Uh, And like so many actors, he, you know, he became more buff the the longer he was in Hollywood. Yeah. The longest time he was just like a skinny, normal looking dude. But then he turned into a raccoon. I don't know what happened there. Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) This is not, this is not a Bradley Cooper breakdown segment. Why not? Every episode should be a Bradley Cooper breakdown. <laughs> well, it seems like our normal pattern is a Nicolas Cage breakdown every week, but. Well, you know what they say, for every cloudy podcast, there's always over lining. Oh, <laughs> All right. Before this gets any deeper into the Bradley Cooper references, let's move on to our watch list. Now, these are movies that we watched this past week. Rob, do you want to give us what you watched first? So I will not uh, start with the main one. I'll start with what I watched last night, which was The Witches on HBO Max uh, with Anne Hathaway, Stanley Tucci, and Octavia Spencer. Um, Also, Chris Rock's uh, voice is in the movie. He's not in the movie, unless you count him being a mouse as being in the movie, because he is in the movie as a mouse. Um, But I had actually not seen the original version of this movie. My wife has and said she didn't like it very much, so I can't speak to that. I, I looked up some of the reviews and it's got like a 5.3 on IMDb and I think that that's like too low to be honest. Okay. I think I think that is perfectly passable as a movie. I don't think it's great by any stretch, but um, it fits into that genre of kid movie that is also terrifying to children <laughs> and is somehow rated PG, which there are not many of. I think of the movie Monster House as like an animated. A movie that falls in that category where there's stuff that's like, as an adult, you're like, eh, you know, I know that's fake. But as a kid, you'd be like, oh, my goodness, that witch's mouth literally just opened across her whole face. Um, Kind of scary stuff. <laughs> and so there's a lot of neat special effects in the movie. And uh, I think the CGI mice are done pretty well. And I really like Anne Hathaway and everything Anne Hathaway is in. So <laughs> if she's in it, I'm going to like it probably. My wife feels the same way about Stanley Tucci, so I think we both came away liking it uh, for the most part. So that's on HBO Max, The Witches, based on Roald Dahl's book. If you have seen the original or not, you can check it out. Um, the other movie that I watched was Godzilla vs. Kong, which I think last episode I called Kong vs. Godzilla every time I talked about it, which is incorrect. <laughs> and, uh... Oh, boy. Now, I said in the last podcast that I really liked, like, this series of monster movies um, that had been uh, coming out featuring Godzilla, featuring King Kong, 
And this one just did not live up to the standard, in my opinion, which is disappointing. Because in a lot of ways, it's like the capstone of what we've been building towards is this fight with uh, Godzilla and King Kong. And the best way I can describe what happened in the movie is that I feel like they leaned entirely, like 100% into the archetype of the Japanese Godzilla movies, which was storyline that makes no sense and is completely confusing, and then giant special effect monster fights. And that was all this was. Like, they're, the, the main storyline revolves around them traveling into the hollow earth, which if you don't know anything about the hollow earth, it's an earth inside the earth. So the idea is that there's not lava and magma underneath us. There's actually, like, another small earth. And this is where Godzilla came from, apparently. And also, apparently, you can dig straight up from it into Tokyo somehow. Hmm. And he climbs out of hmm. the hollow earth into the real earth. and there's just so much that I was like, I, I've heard of suspending disbelief, but this is ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> which sounds a bit crazy to say when we're talking about Godzilla and King Kong. <laughs> but even then, uh, and this is a spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. Uh, the one redeeming thing about this movie is the fact that Mecha Godzilla shows up. Mm. And it's very funny because as I was watching the movie, Chris and I were watching the movie together, my wife as we often do, and she said, oh, look, it's Robot Godzilla, and I said, no, that is Mecha Godzilla, and literally not a joke, within three seconds, the dialogue on the screen was, oh, look, a Robot Godzilla, no, that's Mecha Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, I was excited to see Mecha Godzilla, and um, they powered Mecha Godzilla with the bones of a dead other creature using mm. its brainwaves um, mm-hmm. and had it piloted by a human pilot, which if you might guess when you power a machine with the essence of a dead monster, bad things might happen to the human pilot who is also trying to pilot that machine. So mm-hmm. Mecha Godzilla kind of goes rogue and, uh, Godzilla and Kong are fighting each other. Godzilla has a chance to kill Kong. Doesn't do it in the ultimate, like, I could have killed you, bro, but I didn't. <laughs> like, I'm the boss now. Walk away. But then Mickey Godzilla comes up and starts fighting Godzilla, and Kong comes over and saves Godzilla from Mickey Godzilla. And then Godzilla swims away. And I was like, oh, what was the point of that entire movie? Because... <laughs> There's no resolution at all. Like, we're just like, oh, we knew we existed before and we didn't like each other. We still know we exist and we don't like each other. The end. Like, I I know that maybe because of the way the movies are, the lore, and just how it's set out, neither of them can die. But I feel like, I almost feel like one of them had to die. <laughs> because this movie just, it, it, I, I, it's so unsatisfying in its resolution, and it's unfortunate because there are some very cool fights in the movie. There's one in particular where they are transporting King Kong to the Hollow Earth, and Godzilla shows up in the middle of the ocean in a place he's not supposed to be, and they are literally fighting each other as King Kong stands on top of an aircraft carrier, and they use battleships as weapons against each other. <laughs> like, there's nothing cooler than that. 
Um, yeah, and monkey and lizard fight all the way to the bottom of the ocean, and monkey gets away. And I, I, I need to watch this movie again because I don't understand what I what I saw. To be honest, <laughs> other than I just was not good. And you know, it's an it's an unfortunate thing to say because visually, it was a beautiful movie. I liked a lot of what they did, but I still walked away thinking that wasn't a good experience. <laughs> And I, I is I think that's one of the hardest things about watching movies critically because for me especially I like to like movies I don't like to not like movies and when I see something that I think objectively like this was not well done it can be frustrating <laughs> because I want it to be good yeah but yeah I, if you do like Godzilla watch the movie make your own uh, opinion about it, but I just think it was not up to the standard of the previous ones in the storytelling line. Yeah. Uh, so for me this week, I watched one that my brother had been recommending for quite a while. Uh, and finally, he just lent it to me. Uh, the Foreigner. Now, this starts, uh, starts Jackie Chan and Pierce Brosnan. And it's, it is, it's, it's definitely a fascinating movie. It's worth watching for sure because you kind of get a different side of both Pierce Brosnan and, in particular, Jackie Chan. Um, it's been a while. I realize it's been a while since I've seen a Jackie Chan movie. Uh, this movie came out back in 2017, and the first thing I remember thinking is, "Wow, he really does look old now. <laughs> he really does." So, uh, the basic plot of the movie is that Jackie Chan is living in England and his daughter gets blown up in a bombing. Uh, now the fascinating thing about this is the plot line is ties in with intrigue with the IRA, which it's been a while since you've had a movie with IRA as, as one of the plot elements, because, um, after so much violence for so many years, uh, for the last, you know, 25 years, it's been relatively peaceful and you haven't had that, haven't had that violence going on. But what they do is they, they kind of reintroduce it by saying that after all of this time of peace, there's a, there's a faction that wants a little bit, basically wants a little bit less stability. And so, there's kind of a rogue IRA group that starts, that does this bombing. And so then the plot line becomes a former member of Pierce Brosnan plays a former member of the IRA who's now working, supposedly working with the British to kind of keep the peace. And so the tension builds and this random splinter groups out there bombing people and threatening to blow up all of the peace that's been there. So it's a, it's kind of a fascinating intrigue back and forth uh, plot with the IRA, which is something you have not seen. IRA being Irish Republican Army, if you were not aware of that. Um, and so that one's a fascinating element. But where Jackie Chan fits into it is he goes out to try and seek, okay, who is actually responsible for the bomb that killed my daughter? So there's a revenge element to it. 
But what's interesting is this is not the lighthearted comic Jackie Chan. This is a darker version of Jackie Chan, which you're not used to seeing. So gone are all of the all of the comedic elements, all of the lighthearted kung fu and martial arts and all of those type of things. And Ian is a darker, more vicious Jackie Chan who takes no prisoners, which is kind of a fascinating role for him. It was really good. There's not as much martial arts as what you would normally see. It's more, it's more intrigue and plot and the the downside with this is so overall I would say it's a very good movie and it's absolutely worth watching. Uh, but what what takes the movie down a little bit is the background on Jackie Chan's story. So they they don't do a great job with his story. It takes way too long for you to find out why he has the skills he has. I think they were relying a little too heavily on. Of course, it's he has skills. He's Jackie Chan. <laughs> So I think they relied a little too heavily on that because it's, I mean, it's literally halfway, at least halfway through the movie before you find out why it is that he has the skills he has to be doing the things he's doing. And there's just a bunch of unknown elements. Like there is a, he runs a restaurant and you have no idea why he runs a restaurant. There's a woman in the restaurant who you, apparently works in the restaurant, but you have no idea what his relationship with her is, even though they're close. So there's there's a whole bunch of things, and they don't do a great job of telling you exactly what his backstory is. So despite the fact that it is a good movie, they didn't do a great job developing his overall character. So it's certainly worth watching because, you, like I said, you do get to see a different side of Jackie Chan. Have you seen this one? Okay. Did you see it, Rob? I have not seen that, no. Okay. So I'll need to check that out. Yeah. Okay. So the last one I watched was uh, one that we've talked a little bit about, uh, Stranger Than Fiction. So it was the 2006 movie with uh, Will Ferrell. And I do absolutely love this movie. I think it's fantastic in its uh, uniqueness and its story creation. Basically, it stars Will Ferrell as Harold Crick, who is a boring guy leading a boring life headed nowhere and how one simple, seemingly innocuous event uh, kickstarts his life in a new direction. And I, I enjoy this movie immensely. It's, it really shows about not getting stuck in a rut about what it's like to, to just change to, how if you're if you're stuck to just to be able to change something and and work at it from there uh, what things in life are meaningful there's a unique plot element where where the the narrator is he can hear the narrator and she's actually writing his story so I love they I love the way they liter they take the idea of your life is a story and they make, and they personify that in a really tangible literal way, which is really cool. I think one of my favorite scenes in this is is the scene where he's over at his love interest's apartment and he's sitting in the living room and he sees a guitar next to it next to him on the couch. 
And I love this scene because it's so real. It's, it's exactly what would happen. Uh, he asks her about the guitar. She tells him and asks him if he plays. And he says, oh, well, I only know one song. She's like, no, no, play it, play it. You have to play it. And he's like, no, no, I, I'm not very good. I don't want to play it. And so she, finally she gives up. And he's sitting there, and he's just looking at this guitar sitting next to him. And then he just picks it up and starts playing. And I love it because this is exactly what happens. I mean, Rob, you can relate to this as a musician. If you're in, if you're in a room with a musical instrument and it's sitting around, you're just sitting there, you have to listen to it. You have to pick it up and play it. And this is, this is what I love about it. Uh, Cause that's exactly what he does. He picks it up and starts playing it. So it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. I love to show this movie to people who, say Will Ferrell can only play the dumb brain dead oaf guy. Yeah. Because this shows some of his range, which I really appreciate. Yeah. And he does a great job at the understated character. I love I love when he's sitting there in the uh the office of the literary professor and he's like, Are you the king of anything? King of the lanes <laughs> What do you mean king of the lanes? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so good. So it's on Netflix right now. So if you've not seen Stranger Than Fiction, check out Stranger Than Fiction on Netflix. Which leads us into our next category, which is our recommendations. So we will recommend movies that we think you should watch on specific streaming platforms. So we've done this a number of times with different platforms, and we are back around to Netflix and Amazon Prime. So I will be giving you a couple movies to watch on Netflix. Rob will be giving you a couple movies to watch on Amazon Prime. So, Rob, why don't you go ahead and get us started with movies from Amazon Prime? So I'll start out with, uh, as the poet bard Andy Samberg once wrote in a song mm-hmm. called Lazy Sunday, um, what friends alums starred in films with Bruce Willis, we answered so fast that it was scary. Everybody stared in awe as we screamed Matthew Perry. And the movie they're referencing is The Whole Nine Yards. Also The Whole Ten Yards. But The Whole Nine Yards is uh, the first one. And uh, to me, this is one of my favorite ensemble comedy movies I've probably ever seen. Um, Matthew Perry plays this guy who is just completely oblivious to the fact that he's kind of ensconced in the middle of a world where there's organized crime going on. Uh, gets stuck in this situation with Bruce Willis, who is uh, involved in that, and Amanda Pete as well. Uh, and the story just evolves from there, and it's hilarious, the misunderstandings and things that happen between them, and the fact that as he slowly starts to realize what's going on, Matthew Perry's character loses his mind. And I, I just think it's hilarious. I need to watch it again uh, sometime soon. It's been a little while, but it's one that always makes me laugh um, quite a bit when I watch it. And uh, I want to say, is it Michael Clark Duncan who's in this movie as well? Uh, I believe, I believe I'm correct. Um, uh, but he plays like the big bouncer heavy guy in the movie. Uh, another one I would recommend is Shanghai Noon, mm. which as we talked about Jackie Chan earlier has Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson on. In it, there's actually a follow-up movie called Shanghai Nights as, also, as well. Uh, but Shanghai Noon uh, tells the story of these two guys as they get up to hijinks in the middle of the desert and is very funny. Jackie Chan is really good at 
playing the out of touch foreign guy with the world wise like American guy. Look at uh, Chris Tucker in Rush Hour for another example. Um, but I I think if I had to choose between the Rush Hour series and the Shanghai Noon and the Shanghai Nights series as far as uh, chemistry, I I almost feel like these are better. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Owen Wilson is just great at playing a dummy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fun. Like we've talked about how people's personas are do not line up with reality. So Owen Wilson is probably like the smartest person in the entire world because all he does is play idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and I can just see him saying erroneous. <laughs> But yeah, he's he's uh he he's always great as the foil to another character, whether it's Vince Swan and Wedding Crashers or Jackie Chan and Shanghai Noon, which is on Amazon Prime. And I think we've probably already mentioned this one, so I'm not gonna say a whole lot about it other than if you have not watched Knives Out yet, watch it on Amazon Prime, watch it now. As soon as this podcast is over, if you have Amazon Prime, load it and watch the movie. Now do it, now go, now watch. Yes. <laughs> All right. So a couple of the ones I will give you from Netflix. Uh, the first one is a documentary that just came out called The Last Blockbuster. So this is documents the rise and fall of Blockbuster Video, mm. which is a fascinating story. I mean, it's it's one of those it's one of those stories where you can almost not believe how quickly they went from the top to the bottom and how quickly it all fell apart for Blockbuster. And it really talks about it talk gets into how it was that they were able to muscle out all of the like mom and pop video stores, how that worked, and and then how it all came crashing down on them, as well as highlighting the literal last Blockbuster, one that we've talked about early on in the podcast. Uh, there's one blockbuster remaining. It is in Oregon. And so it talks a little bit about that. So definitely check out the last blockbuster. It is worth your worth your time. Uh, the second movie I want to point out on there is Searching for Bobby Fisher. Now, the, with the popularity of the Queen's Gambit, the story about the the young girl who is a chess prodigy. If you enjoyed that series, you need to watch Searching for Bobby Fischer. Uh, this is about a, a young boy named Joss Waitzkin, who was also a chess prodigy. And it details the story of them finding out about his chess abilities, developing his chess abilities, and then how it kind of goes to his uh, goes to the head of his father in particular, and the relationship between the father and son and how difficult it is to be a prodigy during these when you're so young and and dealing with the pressure and and the whole family dynamic and it's a really really good story and so if you did like the queen's gambit you should definitely check out searching for bobby fisher uh the last one i will reference let's go with uh let's go with miracle so Miracle was a movie put out, I think, 2003 or 2004, about the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. And it details the story of how that team came together, what it took to put it together, and all of the ways they overcame the challenges. And 
it's it's a legendary story in U.S. history, uh, but famously they were able to defeat the Soviet Union, a team which basically full of professional hockey players when they were a bunch of amateur kids who, and the Soviet team was just known for just decimating absolutely everybody. And they'd won, I think, three or four straight Olympic gold medals, and they were heavy favorites to win that one. And it was right during the height of the Cold War and the conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And this game took on so much more significance than just simply a mere hockey game. And so it's kind of rose into the lore of American history. And it's a, it's a really good story. It's, it's, it's a well-done movie, and you should watch Miracle. Okay. Rob, you got anything else for us? I do not. I'm looking forward to watching the whole nine years soon. Yes. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that one as well. All right. Well, that is the show for you. Uh, Thanks for hanging with us. And if you like the podcast, please tell your friends about it. We'd love to have more people to interact with. And so also check out filmfans.com where you can find lists like the ones we've given you today, as well as other articles and great content. And check out our YouTube channel if you'd love to see our smiling faces as we talk about the podcast. Until next time, enjoy the movies.